Hopefully those were familiar words for all of you. Uh, not only because this has been the chapter we've been reading for most of the month, the last three weeks at least, um, but even though they're familiar, we'll be rereading a few verses from there, Luke 2, 11 through 14. And these are some of the most Christmassy words I think you'll ever hear. Uh, I know for a fact that, uh, yeah, like I said, you're familiar with them, you've heard them before, but I want us to really get into this text and drink deeply from this fountain, so to speak, and really get all that God has for us from this story. If Christmas teaches us anything, it is that God is intentional about encountering his people. Um, if God and man are going to meet, it's going to be because it was his idea. And it's going to come about as a result of his initiative. If we're going to be able to receive anything from him today, it's going to be because he desires to give us all that we need. And I believe he does desire this. So I'm going to read Luke chapter 2, verse 11 through 14, again, out of the ESV, the English Standard Version, and then we'll pray and study this passage. It says, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. This small passage that we've been coming back to and then coming back again to, uh, it tells us a lot about Christmas. It tells us the when, the why, uh, at least three things about the who, and at least two things about the why. And I'll satisfy your curiosity right out of the gate by telling you now, when did Christmas happen? What's the when? Answer, in real time, specifically this day. But it happened on a calendar date in actual history. Where did it happen? In real space, not just fairyland. It happened in a place called Bethlehem that you can go to today. Uh, the three things about the, the who of Christmas, um, and before the three, there's one it isn't. It's not about you, actually. The, the who of Christmas is not you, just so you know, but I'll, t I'll touch on that again in a second. But it's, it's about a Savior who is Christ, who is the Lord. And we get two uh, reasons why all of this happens, and it's, it's in verse 14. It says, it's for the glory of God, and it's for peace on earth. A lot of questions that we get answers to in this place at Christmas. Verse 11, it says, unto you this day. Uh, the events in Luke 2 happened on a day. It was that day that the shepherds encountered this angelic host. It was a real day. Probably wasn't December 25th, but you weren't there. You can't say it wasn't. Uh, it was on a real day, though. It was on a real day. Jesus had a birthday. Mary probably kept track of it. I don't think they really did birthday cake and candles and the pointy hats and stuff like we do now, but, but there was a day on the calendar when Jesus Christ turned two. When Jesus of Nazareth turned three, turned four, Jesus was born on a real day in history. It had 24 hours in it, just like the rest of them. How do fairy tales begin? Inevitably, they start with the words, once upon a time, right? Which isn't very specific on purpose. And when you hear once upon a time, you prepare yourself to hear a story that never really happened. In fact, the words might as well just mean this never really happened, right? <laughs> but the angels were not telling the shepherds a fairy tale. They were telling them something happened. They were not telling them something happened once upon a time. They were saying 
Something happened today. Something is happening as I'm telling you this. It's real. You can go see it. And that day is a day in actual history. We're not talking about fantasy, fiction, and man-made myth. We're talking about historical fact. And these terms matter, and it's why we so confidently say, today is the day of salvation. And you're like, is it today, or was it then, or was it... No, today is the day of salvation. Not someday, or not once upon a time. Today. God is willing to meet with you today. You can be confident of this. He is working in our world on each individual day, and he came into this world as a baby on a specific day on the calendar. It was also a day that was anticipated before there were any days. There was a first day, once upon a time. <laughs> Christmas was not a solution to a problem that God did not foresee. It wasn't a last-ditch effort or a plan B. The nativity and all that followed all the way up to the cross and the empty tomb was and is God's preferred method of glorifying himself. It was always part of the plan that he would come and be with people. And the reality that is reflected in every nativity scene and Christmas song was something that was settled in heaven since eternity past. It happened on a literal day or night, but that was anticipated by the ancient of days, since before there were days to mark on a calendar. That's cool. Now, this is a question that theologians have wrestled with, is the incarnation only the result of our sin? Or in other words, if man had not sinned and it was just Eden all day long, right? And, and, and man had not found himself in need of saving, would God have become man? Now we, we can't actually get very far asking the what ifs of this caliber. Um, but I'll tell you what I think anyway, because it's Christmas and you're here. So the answer is yes. God's plan, even in Eden, was to dwell with his people. Even in Eden or before Eden, God's plan in creating the world was to be united in a special loving covenant with people he makes after his image. That was always the plan. Even in Eden, his plan was to be united in perfect love and harmony with his creation. It is still his plan to be perfectly united with us. And union with God is achieved nowhere so perfectly as in the one man, Jesus Christ, Adam at his best, was still not God. So yes, God intended to create that which was other than him, man, and always intended to bridge that gap by becoming with us. The incarnation is not a peripheral detailed creation. It is actually the entire reason for creation in the first place. And Pastor John Piper, he said, it was a day planned in eternity before the creation of the world. Indeed, the whole universe with untold light years of space and billions of galaxies, was created and made glorious for this day and what it means for human history. If that sounds like an overstatement, hear it from Paul. <laughs> it gets better. And then we read the same truth in Colossians 1.16. It says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. For Jesus, all things were created for Jesus. The one in the manger, the helpless baby that can't lift his head, was and is the reason, not just for the season, no, Jesus is the reason for anything being made at all. He's the reason why there's not nothing. He's the reason why there's something instead of nothing. 
I hope that doesn't bother you too much as you go open all your presents that were given to you and for you. The world isn't for you. Neither is Christmas. It's for him. (laughs) In fact, one of the reasons that Jesus came is to free us from the error that battles against this truth that all is for him. The error that it's all for you. He came to correct that. 2 Corinthians 5.15, listen to this. He died for all. Why did he die for all? Well, Paul will tell you. That those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Jesus came, was born, lived, and died so that you could stop living for yourself and instead live for the one who made all things for himself. There's born to you this day. It happened on a day. So there's really two answers to when was Christmas. It was on a day in history, 2,000 years ago, and it's today. Merry Christmas. And it happened in the city of David. It happened in a real place. This is the where. Once again, it, it is not a myth. It didn't happen in Middle Earth. It didn't happen in Narnia. It didn't happen in a galaxy far, far away. It didn't happen... Oh, I can get everyone in this. Just wait. I, it didn't happen at Hogwarts. Okay, it didn't... No, I'll stop. It happened... Real place, real time, real history. It happened in a town called Bethlehem. It's about seven and a half thousand miles away from us. Uh, I checked the weather this morning. It's going to be raining today. Uh, Highs in the mid-50s. It's a real place. Big tourist trap. They just did a big Christmas parade yesterday with a big tree and bagpipes. I read it on the news, really. Yeah, so it's like a real place that has like some weird stuff about it, but people live there and and it's it's home for 25,000 people. It's not make-believe. This is the, but this is the place of which Micah the prophet spoke in Micah 5.2, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth to me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Bethlehem was a small town, sort of a nowhere town, not as bad as Nazareth or North Fork, but still nothing to write home about. But the one, but the Raymond, thank you. Thank you for that. That's good. I'm going to make a note of that, actually, and put that in next year's. Uh, Na- Bethlehem was uh, just a small town, a little town of Bethlehem. But the one who would come there as ruler of his people didn't have his beginnings in Bethlehem. His coming forth was from of old, from ancient days. Jesus existed as the eternal son of God before the events of Luke 2. Or, for that matter, Genesis 1. When he did come to dwell with us, to tabernacle among us, as John says in John 1.14, he came into a real place. It was an everyday sort of place where, with shepherds and farmers and little corner shops and a local synagogue and big families with loud kids and the whole bit. This is the world that Jesus came into. The normal world. The one you and I know as home. The where of Christmas. It's in space, but it's more than that. It's our space. Earth is home, right? Anybody ever made your home anywhere else? The Lord has come to Bethlehem, which most of us think is over there. Seven and a half thousand miles is a a big distance. But the earth isn't that big in a universal scale, is it? It's not wrong to say that the Lord has come here. This planet, the very one that I live on. It happened on a real day. It happened in a real place. What is it that happened? A Savior was born. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. It is... It's strange that every year there's all the decorations, billions of lights, Christmas songs singing about Jesus in grocery stores, right? And you got giant nativity scenes in public places. 
And most people with all that are still able, because we're good at ignoring the important stuff, we're still able to ignore this crucial piece of what is being celebrated. Jesus is the savior of a world in need of saving. If you have ever sinned against God, and I think some of you have, then you need a savior. Back in Matthew 1.21, the angel says to Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Only God can forgive sins against God. That's why God sent the eternal Son of God into the world, because he is God. When Jesus said the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, he was letting it be known that he is the God who is most sinned against. Jesus is the Savior of the world. The world has needed a Savior since paradise was lost in Eden. After Jesus came and after he ascended into heaven, the world that you live in still needs a Savior, but not an unknown one. We need this Savior. We need our Savior, the one who has come to be with us. Our Savior has been declared to us. What is needed is our submission to him. Now, it should be obvious to anyone not living in a hole in the ground that our world still needs saving, right? There's things about your world that need saving. And it's because the world, as John says in 1 John 1, it's under the sway of the wicked one. It's because of sin that you're part of the problem. I hate to break it to you. The problem is sin. The solution is Jesus. Jesus is the Savior. We need saving. Uh, one year, I, I did a sermon on the bad news of Christmas. Uh, jury's still out whether that was a good idea or not. Um, but we, we don't think of Christmas being bad news. And certainly a rescue mission is not seen as bad news to the one being rescued. But the fact that there is a need for a rescue mission assumes the existence of a serious problem. The bad news of Christmas is that you need saving desperately. And it gets worse. You are completely helpless to save yourself. There is no hope within you. The bad news of Christmas, shall I continue? I shall, is that you have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You do have a natural tendency to live for yourself and you're pretty good at it at the expense of everyone around you. You are a part of the world that is under the sway of the wicked one, but Christ has come to save you from each of these things and more. Jesus is our Savior. Amen. He's also the Christ. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ. Uh, Christ is kind of the English word that's from the Greek word that's translated from the Hebrew word that means Messiah. And Christ and Messiah, all these words mean the same thing, anointed one. The entire Old Testament, it's written in anticipation of a final anointed king, an anointed prophet, an anointed priest. There are promises upon promises about the coming of the king. And in Jesus of Nazareth, all these promises are yes and amen. He has come to save us. He has come to be our priest. He has come to be our king of kings. And he has come to be our Lord of lords forever and ever. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ, the Lord. You will benefit from his saving power when you make him your Lord. This is another thing we're very good at just forgetting. It slips through the cracks as our culture is still eager to celebrate a form of the coming of Christ with giving of gifts, Christmas carols, and lights, all the things I like. I would suggest that most of us are not celebrating the Lordship of Jesus quite as much as we're celebrating these other elements. We're not as good at celebrating the fact that there is someone who rules over us. I mean, we have a holiday called Independence Day. You know, that's more our style. We like ourselves 
and our autonomy too much to celebrate someone's lordship over us. We like the idea of a savior much more than we like the idea of a ruler. But the good news, the good news that is brought to the shepherds in Luke 2 is that there's a new authority over them that will dethrone all former principalities and powers. The government will be upon his shoulders. Now, of course, eventually, uh, you know, the, the Jews and, and other people wanted a kind of Lord. They wanted a ruler who would cast down their enemies, but very few wanted a ruler who would cast out their sin. But Jesus is Lord, who's willing to cleanse the temple, who's willing to clean things up, who's willing to rule over every other authority you could possibly put up as a control in your life. Christmas is about bowing before a king. And I have to marvel at the wisdom of God, which makes all our wisdom into foolishness. Uh, when, you, when you see a, a king on a horse, you know, you look up. When you see a towering tall figure, let's say a hundred foot tall angel or something. I think that's how tall angels might be. You, you look up in order to see them. But if there's a baby and there's no, I mean, except like this, usually it's like this. To see a baby, you are inclining your head to look down. To see a baby in a manger you are bowing. You are preparing to bow. Fall on your knees. I promise you that the good news of great joy, which is for all people, is meant to be received in a state of humility and worship with you on your knees before the Lord. Christ has come. This happened in a, on a day, a real day in real history. It happened in the city of David, a real place in the real world. He is a savior, our savior, to take away our guilt. He is the Christ who has fulfilled all our hopes of anointed priest, king, prophet. He is our Lord to conquer all of our enemies and to rule over us. And in verse 11, sorry, all that's in verse 11. Verse 12, the angel gives the shepherds uh, some specific directions to where the Lord and Christ is sleeping for the night. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. So after one angel declares the news and gives directions, there's a multitude of angels that responds to the news. One angel can deliver the mail, it takes a thousand to have a party. And they're responding to the meaning of the news and in their praises, which praise is the correct response to the Christmas story, they're also explaining why all of this happened in the first place. What's the point? I love that there's a, a suddenness. The angels just appear. Suddenly, this multitude appears like an explosion after a short fuse. In Galatians 4.4, it says that Christ came in the fullness of time. It was almost like time wasn't full until this specific sentence was spoken. Then all heaven breaks loose. Once the news is out, heaven must respond with praises. When Jesus entered Jerusalem some 30 years later, he said that if the people who were praising him stopped, that even the rocks would cry out. There is a need to praise God for what he has done. These angels respond to the need, and in doing so, they have shown us what Christmas is all about. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill towards men. The joyful news that on a day... At the fullness of time, the perfect fullness of time, in the prophesied, the perfect prophesied city, a Savior was born who is Christ and Lord. That news has two great outcomes. It shows us two things and it sends us kind of in, 
in two directions of rejoicing. The two great purposes are God's glory and our peace. God is glorified because his son has been born. And peace is spread through humanity wherever he is received. The two great purposes that are accomplished by the coming of Christ are a never-ending stream of glory going straight to God from man. We have, we have a, an ability now to praise him perfectly, not with uh, offerings of bulls and goats and blood on an altar. We praise him with Christ. We offer him Christ. We give him Christ. And then in the other direction, we have never-ending stream of peace coming to man because Christ himself is our peace and he has promised to be with us always. Because of Christ, we can constantly praise him. Because of Christ, God can constantly be bringing us peace. Glory to God. Peace to men. Christ came to show us God's beauty and give us God's joy. He came to show his greatness and give us his security. And nothing except the coming of Christ can accomplish any of these things. Uh, one pastor I listened to, he put it this way, the point of creation and redemption is that God is glorious and intends to be known and praised for his glory by a peace-filled new humanity. That's us. The whole, what's the point? God's great. That's the point. He's great. And we get to see it, and we get to say it. And that's, that's peace on earth. Glory to God in the highest on earth, peace, goodwill towards men. Now, unfortunately, the translation I just read now, which is probably familiar in most of our ears, is not the most accurate, and not what you heard earlier at the beginning of the sermon, uh, or when our, our scripture reader read the passage. Uh, virtually all Greek scholars and all modern Bible translations say something like this, on earth, peace to men on whom his favor rests. That's NIV. Or on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. That's the New American Standard. Or the ESV, which we read at the beginning. It says, on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. That's more accurate. The point is that while God most certainly offers his peace to all, and he most certainly has enough peace to go around, his reserves are full. Only those who receive Christ and trust him as Savior and Christ and Lord will experience the peace he brings. Now the question may be in your mind, and this question would not be out of place. How do I know that I am one of those people on whom his favor rests? Because you've been saying peace on earth, goodwill towards men, and now, now you're telling me that this peace is really only on those with whom he has already shown his goodwill, or that with whom those he is pleased, so, so is that me? Well, the way you can be sure is whether or not you have welcomed the peacemaker, the Prince of Peace, because there is no peace apart from Christ, and if you have him, you've got all the peace you need. Jesus, the Savior, the Christ, the Lord, is our peace. The real question of whether or not you are one of those with whom God is pleased can be answered on the basis of Romans 5.1. I'll read it to you. It says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we can kind of work this equation in reverse. Have you placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, if so, you have been justified. Okay, have you been justified? Then you have peace with God. If you have peace with God, you can be sure that he is well pleased with you through Jesus Christ. You are a recipient of the promise on earth, peace with those to those with whom he is pleased. Christ has made a way for God to be most glorified and for you to be most at peace. And this happens when we meet around a manger where God became flesh. I want you to experience this peace. And when you read scripture, you see, you see there is a kind of you know, global peace that we still have to look forward to. Uh, Isaiah 9, 7 says of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. We know there's coming a time when man will beat his weapons into farming implements. That's prophesied in Isaiah 2. That time has not come yet. 
But there is a peace for now. There's a reason why on that Christmas card you got this year, it said peace on earth. While Jesus is coming again to inaugurate a final and complete peace, he also came to bring peace the first time. We talked a bit about this last week. We mentioned those three kinds of peace. Uh, the first I mentioned already in Romans 5.1, that's peace with God. This is what Christ, the Prince of Peace, has given us by being our Savior. He has saved us from our own doom that we have earned as enemies of God. He has conquered our hostility. He has brought us into a relationship of family rather than enemies. Christ, the Savior, has given us peace with God. That is, we are no longer at odds with him. We're no longer enemies of God. He's on our side, and he welcomes us to his side. This peace is yours as you place your faith in Christ for the saving of your soul. There's the peace with God, and there's also the peace of God. He gives us a peace that is like a sigh, a restful peace, making us lie down in green pastures, leading us beside still, peaceful waters. At least four times in the New Testament, God is called the God of peace. Romans 16, 20 says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Yeah, Merry Christmas. <laughs> Philippians 4, 9 says, The God of peace will be with you, Emmanuel, God with us. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. His peace is making us holy. His peace is a defeat of our enemies. His peace is his constant Emmanuel presence. In Ephesians 2.14, which we read last week, Paul says Jesus himself is our peace. You know, that Philippians 4 passage, which is pretty well known, it says that when we pray and let our requests be known to God, instead of being anxious about our perceived needs and wants, the peace of God will guard our hearts in Christ Jesus. Jesus is our peace. He is the guard of your heart. Now, if we return again to this idea of Jesus as Lord, you'll see that if you want the peace of God to rule in your hearts and lives, then Christ himself must rule your hearts and your lives. When the angels declared peace, they did so in conjunction with the coming of God to dwell among men. God never intended to give you peace apart from himself. You get peace because he says you can be with me now. You don't get peace without being in the presence of the living God. God never intended to give you peace apart from himself. Do not attempt to find it. His purpose is to give you peace by becoming to you the most glorious person in your life. I stole that sentence from another pastor, but I like it so much. It's mine now. I'll say it again. His purpose is to give you peace by becoming to you the most glorious person in your life. You don't get peace apart from him. The key to this peace that rules your hearts and guards your hearts and minds is, is by keeping together those things that the angels spoke of, the glory of God and the peace of man. Seek first the kingdom of God. That's the glory of God. That's God's glory. And all the rest will be added to you, including the peace that guards and rules and replaces anxiety. That peace with God, our most desperate need, is accessed by faith. Peace with God, making him our friend, right? According to Romans 5.1, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God. But that second kind of peace, the peace of God that guards our hearts, that enables us to let out that sigh, it is also accessed by faith. Surprise. Paul says in Romans 15, verse 13, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. God will give you peace as you believe him. Believe that the things he says are true. Believe that his glory is more important than yours. 
believe that he has your best interest in mind. When you believe God for what he says, you will believe he is your Lord and you will live a life of glorifying him and his peace will rest on you. Now, last week, we talked a lot about peace. We lit that fourth candle. And we mostly talked about that horizontal peace that exists between people. We know that God wants us to enjoy peace with him and enjoy the peace of God within ourselves, ruling our hearts. But God also intends for his people to be at peace with other people. And I believe that this will also become second nature to you, or really new nature to you, as you cultivate that sense of awe and amazement over the glory of God in Christmas that the angels announced. That in spite of your sins, God has forgiven you. Be amazed that God entered our world in real time and real space in order to unite you with the living God. Be amazed overwhelmed with wonder that the one who was born in Bethlehem is a savior. He saves you from sin, from judgment, from the tyranny of self. Be amazed that he has overwhelmed your sin with his grace and given you enough of it for you to share. And then be quick to extend that same grace towards others 70 times, 70 times. I want you to see that the reason we celebrate Christmas is for the glory of God, and the glory of God is worth celebrating. The reason Christ came was to glorify God, but in his infinite wisdom, God is determined to receive glory by giving us peace, and it is ours to enjoy. We enjoy peace with God, the peace of God, and peace with each other. I rejoice that the God who shares his glory with none has chosen to glorify himself in this way and allowed us to gaze with the eyes of faith on the glory of the creator, God made flesh, our Savior, Christ, and Lord. Merry Christmas. Let's pray. Jesus, we rejoice in you. We rejoice in you and with you and with the spirit that you've given us. We delight that you have done things so well that you have come to dwell with us, that you have taken on flesh, that you've tabernacled with us, that you, Christ, are Emmanuel, God with us. We worship you. You are the true and living God. And we thank you for your kindness, that you would be with such as us. I pray a blessing on your church here. I pray that you would bless each family here with the peace that passes understanding and all the joy that you intend to give us. Let us receive it. It's for your glory that we pray these things. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Please stand. (coughs) Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above the heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. You are sent. There's also people praying up front if you want to receive prayer for anything. If you'd like to be prayed for, come on up front. If not, go and worship the Lord on Christmas. Thank you.